Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have with me today longtime friend of the Libertarian Christian Institute, several guest appearances. I don't even know if you're called a guest anymore, Dick. I got Dick Clark with us. How's it going, Doug? He's a Ron Swanson of our orbit. <laughs> well, I'm more radical than Ron, but I appreciate the compliment. Yeah. I do wear a mustache in his honor. So Yeah, well, we're not recording this on video for the benefit of our listeners, but I would say that you do a nice Ron Swanson and you outdo him quite significantly, I'm sure. Oh boy, thank you, thank you. He's, he's the superior woodworker, so I'll give him that. But. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about something that's actually, it's interesting that we just sort of ad hoc talked about that here at the start of this episode, but that's actually sort of why we're on to talk with you. And as people probably already tapped on the uh, episode, they already know the title, Can a Christian Serve in Government? We know that a guy like Ron Swanson is a libertarian and a guy like you is a libertarian and, and even more so than the fictional character. But there is the question of whether or not a Christian can serve in government. So actually, we can talk about both. Can a libertarian and a Christian serve in government? Because you are both and we can talk about it. But let's start off with what is it that you actually do? You're not the president. You're not a senator. You know, you're not a high profile person that we're all like, oh, hey, look at that Christian up there. And so what do you do? What is your role in government? Well, so I'm an attorney, which automatically, you know, puts me on the wrong side of a certain reading of scripture, I guess. But I'm an attorney in private practice with a focus on firearms rights. But then I also have my day job where I am the committee legal counsel to the Government, Military, and Veterans Affairs Committee of the Nebraska Legislature. So I sit in committee hearings on bills that are introduced in legislature. I often have a part in drafting those bills and especially drafting amendments that the committee might want to put on a bill. And then that is, you know, the core of what I do. But I work for a specific senator, the chairman of the committee, and really am tasked with advancing his agenda in the context of advising him and hearings and so on. So I'm yeah, right in yeah. the middle of the lawmaking process in state government in Nebraska. So just because I'm a pretty naive about some of the mechanism of how government works. So he is your boss. Is it like he's the person who hired you, pays you, right. and you sit on those committees basically on his behalf? Well, not on his behalf. I sit next to him. Okay. So okay. the chairman of the committee presides over a hearing, and I'm literally sitting on his right, leaning over in his ear, telling him stuff that he needs to know. I prepare a memo on every single bill that's heard by the committee. So they, all the committee members have background information on like, what does this bill do? Where did it come from? Who cares? You know, all, all that stuff. And try to coach them up so that they can ask intelligent and useful questions in the context of that hearing where people with information to share come in and sit in the testifier's chair. Mm. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a personal hire to the chairman of the committee. And when you get elected to a leadership position like that in the Nebraska legislature, you get these additional staff hires as part of what you're being elected to do. And so my boss, in addition to having administrative aid and a legislative aid, which all state senators in Nebraska get those two, as a chairman, he also gets a committee legal counsel and a committee clerk. And so we have four staff in our office plus the boss. Got it. Okay. So have you always only served in this role or did you serve in any of those other roles? Yeah. So 
in my work for the legislature, I've only been a committee legal counsel. I've been an attorney since before I moved to Nebraska. And so when I first came to Nebraska, I was in a different branch of government. I was in the governor's office, what we call the policy research office here. In a way, that's a group of people that both helps advise the governor on how to craft his policy agenda. And they're sort of like the internal lobbyists for the governor, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. we're the ones that went out and met with state senators to try to persuade them of the wisdom of some proposal that the governor was pitching as a good way to move state policy. And so, yeah, we both helped develop those policy positions and help message them to the legislators or anybody else who's involved. And then I've also worked not in government, but around it as director of research at a public policy institute called the Platt Institute in Omaha. And then for a year, I was the research director at the Creighton Institute for Economic Inquiry, which is more of a pure academic deal and not sullied by government involvement, except critiquing what the government was doing and having students kind of develop their understanding of just the many uh, and exciting ways in which government is broken from the economic point of view, right? So. Yeah. Okay. So you're fairly involved. And as some of our listeners might know some of your backstory, I think it might be a good time to sort of put that on pause for a second and then talk about like, well, what kind of libertarian are you? Because I know you pretty well. And I know how you argue. I know the kind of libertarian you would probably fall into if we had buckets of libertarians in our common milieu of how libertarianism has gone. So maybe I'll let you introduce like how you define what kind of a libertarian are you? Where are you on the spectrum? So that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I'm a radical libertarian in the Latin sense, right? From the roots up, all of my policy conclusions are derived from this core principle that we shouldn't use violent compulsion against peaceful people, right? It's just not justified. Now I'm influenced in my understanding of the applications of libertarian theory by the Austrian school. You know, Mises, and then of course, especially Murray Rothbard, people like Walter Block. And my thesis, you know, aside from the justice thesis, which I already gave you, which is, hey, compulsion of peaceful people is wrong. But there's this other economic thesis that runs alongside of it, right? And that's that there's basically nothing productive where violent bureaucrats have a comparative advantage over competing profit-driven entrepreneurs, right? Like, I just think Mm. that worth doing, markets can do it better than violent monopolies, right? And so, Rothbard talked about this happy coincidence, right? That the most just economic system, the market, is also the one that leads to the greatest human flourishing, right? So where justice and prosperity are aligned. And of course, as a Christian libertarian, I would say that's not a mere coincidence. coincidence. Yeah, yeah. It's a divinely ordained one. So yeah, that's where I come in. People would call me an anarcho-capitalist or a market anarchist or, you know, radical libertarian. Any of those is fine. So... Okay, so you're not like a Beltway libertarian who happens to live in Nebraska. That's in some ways what I wanted to make sure our listeners understood about you because it could be very easy to believe that a person who's a libertarian who's working in government sort of fits into that sometimes eschewed type of libertarian. Right. Well, I'm pretty out there, I guess, from the perspective of people that like (laughs) the existence of states. So, (laughs) Okay, so you sort of defined government in your description of, you know, why you are an anarcho-capitalist. But if you were to define government and differentiate it from what the word the state is, how would you go about describing that? Because obviously governance is 
an issue that we believe in, mm-hmm. or I should say the existence of governance is something we believe in. And, and a lot of times people think that government is the only possible option for governance. Yeah. And so the question is, does promoting justice require a state, right? And so in our book, Doug, you'll recall that in question 26, we talked about this fun little uh, quote from a Tolkien letter, right? And he was writing to his son about, you know, his political thinking. And one of the things he said that government is an abstract noun, meaning the art and process of governing, and it should be an offense to write it with a capital G or so as to refer to people. So really, that's what we in modern parlance, you know, 80 years later or whatever would call governance. And usually nowadays, when people say government, they're really referring to this particular organization, right? The state. And so the father of sociology, Max Weber, famously defined the state as that human community that establishes a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence in a given area, right? In a given geographic jurisdiction. And so it's not that the state is merely governance, but it's a type of governance that is operated by a monopoly that uses compulsion and uses compulsion against people who don't want anything to do with it and aren't aggressors themselves in many cases, right? And we can reference taxation as an aggressive form of compulsion, right? Where there's a threat of violence by the government against the taxpayer if the taxpayer doesn't pay up. Mm -hmm. And there are many others, right? Everything down to the zoning laws. And so that's, I think, an important way to understand what the state is versus what governance is. Because governance, we want to promote justice, right? And in our book, we talked that look, if we're just talking about restraining injustice, Christians should care very much about that, right? I mean, the Bible is full of references to the just innate injustice of theft, of murder, you know, of other violence against people, against even things like employers ripping off their employees and not giving them the wage that was agreed on, right? And so there is certainly a place for justice and for institutions that promote it in the world. But the question is, can we use initiatory violence, right? Aggressive violence in order to solve social problems? Or should we really, especially as Christians, stick to non-compulsory, collaborative, peaceful means? And of course, given the title of this podcast and who's talking on it, right? You know what our answer is, right? (laughs) We believe in the peaceful means, the voluntary means. And so that is what sets the state apart from the menu that we can really choose from as Christians, I think. Yeah. And I just think that it's essential to not give up the payload that we care about, which is justice in the attempt to achieve it, right? In the attempt to obtain it. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting that. I mean, I think you and I are also both fans of Frederick Bastiat. Oh, yes. Or I don't know, the audiobook narrator of our book. By the way, the book we're talking about, listeners, if you haven't heard, is Faith Seeking Freedom which is libertarian Christian answers to tough questions. The Bastier, I think is how um, Jacqueline pronounced it, which might actually be more accurate. But anyway, you and I are fans of Bastier. That just sounds (laughs) snooty to to say it that way, but I like it. But anyway, the principle I want to bring up there is that he basically says that people can't do collectively what you're not allowed to do individually or something. I think it's something along those lines and that the flip side of that would be something like if you and I, Dick, actually happen to live in the same community and we wanted to hire Norman to be our security, there's nothing immoral about that just because you and I can individually do it. So outsourcing 
to something consensually is actually permissible in a certain community and so forth. And so there is a certain sense in which I, and I'll get your take on this, there's a certain sense in which what I say often is the more local, the better, because that better reflects what resembles consent and approval and cooperation. Whereas the more federally you go, like I have no consent almost at all in what happens in the federal government. You know, for me though, it's just a bright line. If it's compulsory, it's broken. And, you know, there is a temptation, I think, to say, well, does this kind of emulate what the market would do if we weren't talking about a bunch of organized crooks, you know, (laughs) violating people's rights? Does this sort of look like what the non-crook version would do? But the problem is we can't really know, right? And I think that there's a danger when people try to get a little too, you know, they try to prognosticate about, hey, what's the result? And maybe this state policy will promote liberty more. And so we'll do that, even though in the short term, these people will be, you know, hurt in some way or have their rights diminished in some way. And I try to be much more maybe atomistic in my analysis and just say, look, does this act today violate the rights of some person, right? And if so, I just have to forego considering that as a live option, right? Because I, it's just not permissible to violate the rights of others. And so we shouldn't consider strategies that might be otherwise attractive. Mm. And that is very challenging to do, especially when you do work around government and you're involved in trying to discern how you could modify state policy in the direction of liberty without just using you know, the delete key on your keyboard a whole bunch, right? And so it's, (laughs) and you know, my general thought on it is that it's okay to pare away a little bit at a time if it's not possible to get the whole enchilada, right? If it's not possible to hit the big red button and abolish the things that we don't like, you know, instantaneously. But that incremental approach cannot be one where you give up ground in order to get it, you know? And so I I just think that we can always work with policymakers, you know, as Christian believers, we can work with policymakers to try to encourage them not to perpetuate injustice, right? And yeah. if there is a particular example of an injustice that the state is perpetrating, trying to influence them to roll that back, I think is a benevolent and upright and non-guilty thing mm. to undertake. But we have to be so careful, right? Because it's so easy to not foresee some potential consequences of the way that you write something. And even if you compare the old version to the new version, say, okay, new version, there's going to be fewer like people put in cages. There's going to be fewer people whose stuff is taken. But again, sometimes courts do weird things and how they read statutory language, they apply it in a way that maybe the people passing the bill or conceiving of the bill didn't recognize they might. And so it's a dangerous game to you mean like involved. the commerce clause. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it turns out if your crowbar is just stuck in that crack for long enough over hundreds of years that the courts will pry that yeah, thing yeah. open. Well, yeah. you know, that's an actually somewhat pertinent question to the conversation here is that, you know, you and I live in a legal system, I should say, that was created by people who align a lot with the values that we're talking about here. And that is basically, you know, we're talking about the founders. And for better or for worse, the resulting system is what we would call, I guess, a democratic republic. And it has a lot of flaws. It has a lot of really great things to say about it. You and I acknowledge that laws don't come from governments. There is, you know, we believe in natural law, natural order. What's your take on the system that we have as the United States? So what I would say is that despite 
the injustices that we've been talking about and plenty of others we haven't mentioned yet. Look, it's great when separation of powers or federalism or some enumerated constitutional right can be used as a lever for liberty, okay? And I'm, I cherish those opportunities. And as an attorney, I try to find them for clients. And certainly when I work in my government job, I'm trying to enhance safeguards for liberty that were intended as such and have failed in some way or need to be, you know, uh, beefed up and could reduce the instances of state injustice. But in spite of all of those things, right, in spite of this very complex, thoughtfully constructed system of government that the framers conceived of, we still have this system that has committed these mass injustices over hundreds of years in spite of those safeguards, right? And so... It's not that I want to roll them back and have an even worse, you know, like totalitarian regime or something. Certainly, we can recognize that some states are more virulent, you know, in a given phase of their existence, right? There's just broader, even more grave injustices being committed in some places than others. Some states are relatively liberal in the Latin sense, right? More of a let you be, you know, laissez-faire sort of society than others. Some societies are very, very totalitarian, authoritarian. And certainly we can recognize that the one is better than the other, right? That mm. we should prefer yeah. the less totalitarian system. But less isn't enough, right? There shouldn't be any. And I, for one, don't believe that I will ever live in a world where injustice doesn't exist at all or where sin doesn't exist at all. I mean, in glory, that'll be the, the status. But till we get to the other side of the veil... I don't think that's what we experience in this human life. But Christians need to be salt and light. And we cannot be champions for injustice or be silent about things that might cause the world to not understand our message of a perfect and perfectly just God that we claim the name of, right? And so that, I think, is a really important part of the Christian mission is just to differentiate what we are telling people good news about compared to the world's good news. And our good news is good news that involves this Prince of Peace, right? Who wants brothers to love each other and wants there to be concord and harmony. And in fact, as Bastiat points out, really devised the human condition in such a way where we get the most prosperity out of a voluntary market system, right? And liberty, as Bastiat ends the law with, you know, is an acknowledgement of faith in God and his works. And so I think when we help people understand that, look, Christians, don't want you to be in chains, right? We're the ones visiting the prisoners. We're the ones who are trying to help the sick and the needy and the orphan and the stranger. We're the emancipators. Yes, right. That, you know, that's not fake stuff. That's not just window dressing. That is part of what our Savior commanded us to be and to do. And so I, I do think all that's important and not lumping in ourselves with some unjust actor because we think we can ride on his coattails. I think that's pretty important too. You know, the principles that you're just talking about there and the sort of mission and calling that we have as Christians, do you think that's part of why you see that there's an okay role for the Christian in government? Because, I mean, it's there, it exists, and it does have an influence, and therefore you can influence it in a more just direction. I mean, is that part of your thinking, or is that just, you know? Oh, sure. What do you think? The only reason I'm involved in any of this stuff that I, frankly, mostly despise and don't think should exist, it's because, you know, as the Austrians would say, look, What happens at the margin matters, right? And so the fact is, even if it's a small change, maybe that's the difference where one person gets to be free who was going to be locked up or one person doesn't have some 
mm. family, uh, you know, inherited wealth wiped out by a, you know, a greedy bunch of politicians who think they can spend that money better than, you know, the person who received it from a loving family member can, you know, and, and it's the same thing with, you know, representing people in criminal court. You know, I'm not solving the systematic problems, but helping one person out of a jam and snatching that person out of the jaws of the state is a laudable thing, right? I mean, the, the good Samaritan didn't fix all of poverty everywhere. He didn't fix the highwayman problem in Israel and Samaria, right? But he helped this one guy. And that was a laudable, praiseworthy thing. And that's, that is the quintessential example given to us by our Savior of being a good neighbor, right? Being a loving neighbor. And so I don't think that God wants us to only care about these grand collective problems because really, and we as, as Austrians especially ought to recognize, there's not a difference between macro and micro, right? The macro is just the amalgam of all those micro things, right? All those individuals that have those individual problems, those put together are the social problem, right? And so the way you attack those doesn't have to be through some communitarian or collectivist institution. It can just be me walking over and helping that guy right there. And I think that that should be the practice of Christians. I love, you know, our friend Austin Rogers in his book, The Third Temptation. He talks with just great zeal about how important it is to not let the state steal the function of the church as, you know, a ministry to the poor and to the widow, to the orphan, to the immigrant, visiting prisoners, all these things. That should be our brand, right? Like that's what people should recognize Christians as partly being about, you know, we serve our mm. risen savior. And part of the way we do that is we minister to the least of these. And when we allow that to be delegated to the state, right? To the secular institution, all the joy is sucked out of it. And by the way, it's not being explicitly done for the glory of God anymore. It just turns it into a different thing altogether. And it's not as beneficial for society. Mm. And it's certainly not as beneficial for our message of telling people this good news, you know, and getting that good news out there where people want to know our Lord. Let me ask you a devil's advocate hypothetical, okay. which is not as hypothetical as I'm hoping to make it. Let's say there's a bill on the table that your senator gets to vote on and it would basically eliminate welfare mm -hmm. for those in, you know, I guess, Nebraska. And you're going to have people who are against removing it, right? They're going to say, well, no, we need this. And they're going to say, we need this because there are 3 million, 300,000, whatever number of people, more than one, you know, many people will be affected if we eliminate this. Yeah. And what's on the table is you having to decide, well, shoot, okay, let's say that that's actually true. Let's say that even you go and do the studies and say, oh, you know what? I don't know if the churches can really step in for 3 million people in Nebraska. I don't know how many people are in Nebraska. There's only 2 million you know, in the whole state. So yeah. In the whole state. All right, let me go with 100,000 people yeah. that are going to be affected. Maybe that's a low number or whatever. You know what I'm trying to say though, right? Like sure. if you could even say, hey, if taking something away affects a lot of people, maybe temporarily, and you and I would probably assume that it's temporary. At least that's the way that we would think because people are going to act differently if there is no welfare, right? So we understand that human action is a part of that. You're going to have possibly a lot of churches step in because I know that there are Christians out there who would say, well, hold on here. You can say all you want that churches should be the ones responsible for this and be the ones to pick up the mantle and we don't want the government to do it. But right now, if you eliminate this, it's going to go away and those people are going to be out. And those are real people who might, some of them might actually die. Some of them are going to be, you know, malnourished, whatever it might be. So there are real people 
And the thing that we should recognize, and I'll again reference Austin's wonderful book, which talks about this in detail, is that the welfare state keeps people poor. It creates incentives, especially for child poverty. And, you know, I think Austin compellingly makes the argument that the welfare state is probably the single greatest cause of child poverty in America. It promotes single parenting as opposed to a married mom and dad who are raising a child together in a family. And that is such a significant driver of poverty. And Austin even talks in his book about the different impact that it has had on African-Americans as compared to people who demographically are more affluent. And it is astounding how badly the welfare state has damaged the Black family. And so it's not loving to keep people on heroin. It's not loving to keep people on welfare. And this is not like the, you know, the Scrooge, you know, oh, are there no poor houses speech or anything like that. I want to help those people. And so we've got to get them out of this addictive, destructive system that incentivizes them to live in a way that will ensure their future poverty. So what would be your compromise if you were advising a Christian to be like, would you be like, yeah, let's abolish this? Or would you compromise and say, well, okay, we got to have a period of time here so that people can see the end of the runway? Well, you know, look, on something like that, I have the benefit of always having worked for people who are pretty much at the correct position on this already. So they're not the kinds that are liable to compromise on this. It's just that there's not enough of them for things to go that way. But no, I I don't ever recommend a compromise of that nature because it's kind of like saying, well, we'll only keep robbing you a little while longer. It's just fundamentally, it's a non-starter. It's unjust every moment that it goes on. You know, of course, reducing the extent of the victimization is preferred to keeping it at its status quo ex ante. But none of it is permissible from the principled standpoint. And so you diminish it to the extent that you can possibly do it. But if you allow some to stay because you didn't have the ability to get rid of all of it, if you've reduced the extent to which the state is harming people in this way and destroying society in this way, that's better than doing nothing. But again, there's just a difference between, hey, I got three points instead of seven versus, hey, I got these three points, but I actually had to run a play in the other direction for the other team and, you know, get them some points. Yeah, you can't do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You can't create a new government program. You can't grow a tax rate. You can't get rid of an exemption or these things like that because every one of those things involves endorsing and facilitating the victimization of a person. And so I've just been very fortunate that even though I've worked in and around government for 12 years now, you know, ever since I got out of law school, pretty much, I've always worked for bosses, including one who at the time was the highest elected Libertarian Party person in the country, Laura Ebke. I've worked for people who have good principles, you know, and you know, the senator I work for currently, he's Native American, he's Ogallala Sioux, and he grew up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. He will tell you, look, if you want to see what socialism looks like, go to an Indian reservation. If you want to see what it looks like when the government takes care of your every need, go to this place that's the poorest place in our region, is the Pine Ridge Mm. Indian Reservation. You've got like a third of children being born with fetal alcohol syndrome, alcoholism, literally a majority of the people on the reservation are alcoholics. And that's a dry reservation, by the way, that doesn't have legal alcohol at all. And so if you want to see what it's like when government has pervasive control to address all these social problems the government way, go look at those places where it's been done Mm. in a total fashion. 
and you will see how destructive it is and why we should help people flee from it. It's not merciful to keep people bound up in this system that incentivizes them to hurt themselves over and over again. And that's what welfare does. If a Democratic president asked you to be part of a team of rivals in his cabinet, could you do it? Well, sure. You know, the beauty of being like an advisor or something like that is you don't really get much of a say-so. You just pitch your idea. And if the boss takes it, hey, all right, good. And sometimes the boss just doesn't take your idea, right? And so for me, again, the way we have to analyze these questions about working in government and whether or not you're an aggressor in the way that we libertarians would use that word. There's a wonderful article by Walter Block. And of course, he's written an article on every topic that could possibly arise in our libertarianism. Yes. His CV is like 200 pages long. He's written a topic on how libertarians should write about topics. Yes, yes. You know, in, in libertarian writing, you don't have an airdose number like mathematicians. You have a block number. You know, how many degrees of separation are you from having co-authored a paper with Walter Block? And no one has a block number greater than three. Anyway, but I digress. But he wrote this great article that was published in Libertarian Papers in 2009. It's called Libertarian Punishment Theory working for and donating to the state, where he really tries to systematically analyze this problem of how do we know when you've crossed the line and gone from doing something permissible to doing something that conflicts with your, you know, your principles, your libertarian yeah. uh, belief that this is how justice works, right? That compulsion is wrong. And we just have to analyze every action. You know, if you are vacuuming the carpets at the Nebraska Capitol, None of that involves aggressive conduct against peaceful people. You know, you get paid out of a government pot of money that, you know, money is fungible. And if you're a libertarian, especially, and Block argues this in his paper, better that you should take home some of that money than it go to a statist. And you're not doing anything yourself that is an act of aggression against another person, against a rights bearer whose rights you are stepping on or violating. And so... That's permissible. But if you're a person who is involved in caging people, in taking their stuff, not letting them use their stuff how they see fit, or any of these other things that would constitute aggression, and all of that is going to involve an element of some threat of violence or actual violence. But if you're involved in one of those kind of government jobs, I think there is a problem. And to once again go back to Austin's book, chapter seven of uh, The Third Temptation is wonderful. And talking about how we analyze this. And he, I think, nails it. He basically just says, look, if you're directly involved in exacting vengeance, soldier, policeman, prison guard, perhaps judge, jobs incompatible with our Christian calling, we are to be a people known for loving and reconciling with our enemies and thereby drawing them into the kingdom community. That goal is simply not compatible with the jobs of those who use force or violence to subdue others. And I think that's such a wonderful way of putting it. We don't hate those people, but that just takes me off the mission, man. I can't do it and be mm. following with my whole heart what God has for me to do. So this is not something I was prepared to even ask you, but with that quote, it kind of brings to mind the question of Christians and law enforcement and the current sort of sentiment about police yeah. and other types of law enforcement. I think it would be sort of obvious for us to say, well, you know, federal agents that are using violence to do things, you know, against citizens is definitely not in the purview of civil governance. But law enforcement, to some extent, does have a role in some sort of civil governance. I mean, maybe you don't agree, but like, what is your take on the Christian and 
becoming part of law enforcement as an occupation? Is that a bridge too far for you or is there a proper role? Like, what's your take on that? Well, we've, we've actually, the reason I'm asking is that we've actually gotten this question a good number of times it, basically since the publication of the book. It's like, well, hey, what, what do you guys think about this whole thing? Because there's a lot of bad sentiments since the pandemic about this. I don't think that I could counsel any person who is a Christian believer to go become a law enforcement officer working for a state law enforcement agency, okay? But remember, that's not to say that there is not a place for like security services, physical protection, dispute resolution services. We believe in all that stuff. Those are all worthwhile services that need to be provided. And of course, as good free marketeers or whatever, we recognize there's value in specialization and the division yeah. of labor. We don't all need to be our own lawyer and plumber and dentist and cobbler and all that. You know, it's good that people do what they're good at and we're all better off when that happens. Yeah. But there's a difference between security services and law enforcement, right? So security services are really about defense and law enforcement really has a greater focus on vengeance, on punishment. And I think that that is a really important distinction. I think that if I'm defending a non-aggressor against an aggressor, and I'm trying to prevent the further victimization of that first person, I think that's a noble enough thing. I think it's totally compatible with the Christian walk. But if I'm going to try to like round somebody up and temporarily cage them until the slave auctioneer, aka prosecutor, you know, sells the government on you know, why to lock them up for even longer. I just don't see how there's a Christian role in that because we're the ones who are supposed to be visiting and ministering to the prisoners, not creating them, in my opinion. So I would say that there's a lot of police officers who are Christians who are maybe even libertarian or libertarian adjacent, who the former description is why they became a police officer mm -hmm. to, and I realize that there's no constitutional obligation for them to protect us, right? Yes. We've witnessed certain areas where, you know, that's not happening. And it's actually, I think it was in a Supreme Court ruling that they don't, right? Mm -hmm. Am I right about that? It was yes. a Supreme Court thing. But it seems that the idea of protect and serve or defend and serve or whatever is sort of the sentiment that a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of, I should say the good-natured Christian who's like, hey, I just, I love my community and I want to serve yep. on the local police department. Well, and I'm just going to keep plagiarizing Austin, but I'll credit him so it's not plagiarism, right? It's a citation. <laughs> so he basically just says, look, maybe it's possible to imitate Christ in one of these jobs, but look, there are so many ways where like if your giftedness from God is, hey, you got the gift of physical courage and you're a physically healthy person and you know, you're the kind of person that can run into harm's way to help others. Well, guess what? That meshes up pretty nice with what a firefighter has to do. You know, there, there's all these other jobs where you can hmm. be heroic, where you can use that giftedness in a way that doesn't conflict with what we're called to be as believers. And I think that, you know, Austin's example is, look, firemen, emergency medical technicians, international aid workers, missionaries to hostile countries. Those are all ways where you can serve the kingdom with your bravery, right? With your giftedness that God has given you. And you're not just leaving that to die on the vine as, oh God, mm -hmm. I'm not going to use that talent. You know, he gave it to you for a reason, but we don't have to use it in a way that, first of all, doesn't explicitly give God the glory. And second of all, actually entails injustice, right? Because I just don't know how it's possible to be a police officer, at least in the United States, without engaging in armed robbery and kidnapping on a regular basis, because that's what they're doing, right? They're subduing people through threat of deadly violence 
to kidnap them. That is a capital crime. That's one of the four things, if they weren't a police officer, that you could shoot a person for in self-defense in Nebraska is kidnapping, right? But that is literally part of the job description. You can't be a cop without doing it. And so I just, I don't see how a person can function in good conscience while they're engaged in the violent subduing and kidnapping of people for vengeance's sake. That's not compatible with what Christians are called to be. And I don't think there's any wiggle room to that. Now, does that mean that there are no Christians in that job? Doesn't. And I would never say that a person couldn't possibly be a Christian if they're in that job. But what I would tell them is I really think that they should reconsider it. And I think they should repent of it and walk away from it for Christ's sake. That's going to offend a lot of people, but that I believe it's okay. I'm going to push back a little more, not because I, well, I should say this. And I was going to say, not because I disagree with you, but there might be some disagreement that I'm not sure I've fleshed out in my brain yet. But I like it that there's a Dick Clark in the Nebraska government. Okay. If there were more of you, that would be a better thing. And I know you don't have a big ego, but I think you would agree, right? You would love more people who think like you in the government because then you could work either toward diminishing it or if there's some minimalist proper role for civil governance by something called the Nebraska legislature, then you would sort of aim toward that, right? Do you really want the entire police force of every police department in the United States to be filled by people who are not followers of Christ? Well, since I believe that it is a fundamentally criminal enterprise engaged in injustice, yes. I don't want there to be Christian police officers for the same reason that I don't want there to be Christian mafioso. The bottom line is there are some functions of government that there's no Christian way to do it, okay? Like there's not a Christian way to kidnap an innocent victim. Christians just should abstain from that, right? Man stealing is a capital offense under the Mosaic Law. And I think that that's recognized essentially all non-slave societies everywhere, right? And so if something crosses that line and that's what you would have to do to have that job, I think that's where the problem comes in. We would be remiss if we didn't point out the good examples from Scripture, the positive examples of people who were followers of the one true God, the living God, you know, God of Jacob and, you know, all the rest who worked in government, right? Now, they had the added benefit of not being there voluntarily, right? Like Joseph is the first one I think that we're made aware of in Scripture. Of course, he was sold into slavery, went through this terrible period of false accusation and Even further imprisonment beyond just plain old slavery. Now he's a slave in a dungeon. And yet he ended up being Pharaoh's right-hand man. And that was accounted to him for righteousness, right? That what he did in the context of being an advisor to Pharaoh and having a substantial amount of delegated power from Pharaoh is something that I think the Bible is pretty unambiguous about as being a praiseworthy thing where he was used as an instrument of God and as a willing instrument, right? There are some instruments of God who are unwilling, right? Like if we think of, you know, the evil kings of Babylon or Assyria or whatever, who are taking Israelites into captivity, it's not that those were just and morally upright instances of their conduct. It's just that our God is a God who can use even the evil of evildoers for the kingdom's good, right? And so, you know, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a just person. He was a criminal for kidnapping a bunch of people and taking them into bondage. Mm. But still... God raised up a Daniel, right? And he raised up others in that context to be part of the instrumentality of changing the king's heart like the course of a river, which we're told that our God is capable Mm. of doing. And so I think that Joseph and Daniel are two, probably the most prominent examples. 
of believers who got into a position of influence, but never are we told about them engaging in any kind of conduct that we would, you know, as modern libertarians using our vocabulary call aggressive or rights violation. You know, they're trying to bend that ruler in the direction of justice, right? In the direction of not giving offense against God's justice and also promoting, you know, the general prosperity and welfare of the people underneath them, right? In the case of Joseph, you had uh, what seemed to be a pretty nationalized economy where the government essentially controlled the grain supply. And given that context, the fact that Joseph had prophetically revealed to him that there was going to be this famine and that they needed to engage in this great process of putting away stores of food, you know, for the not rainy day, God used him on purpose and he was used on purpose. You know, he consented to it, right? He wasn't just an unwilling instrumentality. He wanted to serve God and this is the way he was doing it. And so I, I do think that, okay, a state exists. Yes, there are ways for Christians to try to take the rough corners off and eliminate some of the instances of injustice, but it has to be in service of the kingdom, right? It can't be that we're allowing our Christian identity to be co-opted by the state. And, you know, that's something else that Austin talks about in his book is just the real sadness of seeing what happened, you know, when Constantine nominally converted to Christianity, but then engaged in all of these acts of murder and atrocity now in the name of Christ, right? And all of these people that might have been open to the messages of Christianity shut their ears to it in part because that's how it was being sold, right? You know, Christianity is the religion of the Roman government. And that hurt the Christian witness of believers, right? It didn't help it. Now, at the same time, they still prayed in that era for peace, right? Because that Pax Romanus allowed free travel, you know, to the far-flung corners of the known world, right? And they could carry the good news of Jesus Christ in a relatively safe environment So it's not that they were revolutionaries, right? They weren't the Maccabeans trying to overthrow the government or institute a Christian state. They're just saying, God, just thank you for blessing us with this time when we can go down the road and tell people about you, right? And God, just we just pray that you would affect the government in a way where we can keep doing what we need to be doing. And that is the Christian's role. I don't think it's to create, you know, like a theonomist haven where we're going to go and check whether people have cotton and polyester threads in the same garments and whip them if they do. And all that stuff. I, think, <laughs> I think that's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke, right? Like we're not supposed to be in that vengeance business. Our God is just and he will repay. Well, that was quite a lot there, Dick. <laughs> I have to say that you are well, well versed in explaining the role of the Christian and staying on mission and staying heavenward in the sense that like we are here about the kingdom of God and we are not here about the kingdom of Caesar. Those are my words there. Yeah. Sort of summarizing it. And I think we've got a better picture of what it could be like for a Christian to serve in government in certain capacities. And, you know, of course we could explore all kinds of different roles that one could be in. We've talked about yours. We've talked about the police. We've talked about, I don't know, maybe we've talked about something else. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? You know, such a critical part of whether you can work in that environment and have it be compatible with the principles that we've been talking about, you have to have the freedom from your boss to do that, right? If you're in an advisory role and, hey, my job is to just give my opinion on things and help the boss understand how one choice will interact with all these other galaxy of factors, I think that is something that you can do and you've not created a victim, right? 
And look, at the same time, though, I understand that there are people who are in jobs and then they come to a, a new conclusion or new conviction about their beliefs. And now they find themselves in a job that is not congruent with those beliefs that they have, yeah. you know, been convicted right. about. And my interest is not in condemning those people or dunking on those people where we love them, right? And especially Christian brothers and sisters, right? We love them and we want God's best for everybody. But God's best is bound up with internalizing his righteousness, right? And letting it shine out through us so that the world can see it. And we don't want to do things to dilute that. And so the hope is that in spite of the you know, pretty stern language that we may have employed in, in this discussion, that it comes across as for people's good. And we want people to be more like Christ. And I want to be more like Christ. And I think you want to be more like Christ. And, and let's help each other do it, right? That's what the body of believers in part is there to do is to admonish each other and instruct each other in righteousness so we can grow to be like him. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Dick. Thanks for joining us. I think it's been a very fun discussion. I'm sure Austin will enjoy hearing this episode as well because I think he's a listener of the show. Uh, well, <laughs> so, I, you uh, know, go- I, I had a review copy of his book and I'm ashamed yeah. to say that I've just gotten around to reading it and I just think it's dynamite. And I uh, thought his answers were awfully well-worded to not just steal them. So... Go ahead and give the title again so if somebody That's didn't the already third know. Temptation, Rethinking the Role of the Church in Politics by Austin Rogers, who I believe is on the roster as a staff contributor at, uh, at LCI and just a, yeah. a great guy yeah. and a great writer. Yep, that's right. All right, well, Dick, thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.